0: stretch out a hand if you'd like to Lord I want to thank you so much for these these times sitting listening to your word Lord allowing your word to speak to us Lord to build our faith by hearing your word but also to know your spirit changing and transforming us and feeding us building us up Lord it's just such a wonderful privilege and now I ask for Rebecca that she would know your peace She would know real freedom to minister for you, and everything she says, Lord, that she's prepared to say, I pray that you would take those words and use them, Lord, for your glory. Amen. Amen.
1: Yeah, Father, I want to thank you, especially for the time that's gone before us this morning, the time that we've spent together in worship. And Lord, I feel that you're already doing so much among us this morning, that almost the preacher has been given but lord please take everything that i've prepared this morning and speak to each one of us here lord when i was talking with simon just before the service he said given the choice between preaching and worship leading he'd take worship leading every time lord i don't have that choice i don't have that gift or anointing so i'm up here preaching but lord i pray That my preaching will be of real worship to you, Lord, and I pray that we will continue in that attitude of worshipping this morning, Lord, as we listen and as I speak. In your name, Amen. 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 Am I on okay? Is that better? Still not that great, is it? Is that better? Yeah, (laughs) should I hold it up there? (laughs) Twist it a little bit. There we go. Is that okay? Are we all right now? Good. Okay, now, um, as you're aware, we've been going through our little mini-series, haven't we, our preaching mini-series on the metaphor of water. And Fraser introduced this series by looking at streams of living water, and Abe last week was talking very much about when we are established by the spring. So lots of watery themes already. I'm coming at it this week from a slightly different perspective. I want to look at what happens to that water. How do we access that water? How do we access that living water when we find ourselves in a parched and barren land? When we find ourselves in a desert or a wasteland? And so today, I'm going to be focusing particularly on a few verses from Isaiah 43. And then I'm going to go back a few centuries, to the story of Ruth in the Old Testament. It's going to be a little bit of a preach of two halves this morning, but hopefully, and by God's grace, I'm going to seamlessly tie it together and you'll see where I'm going. Now, before we focus in on the passage in Isaiah, don't turn to it just yet. I think it's a really good idea to give it a little bit of context. So, for those of you who are not at all familiar with Isaiah, maybe you're very new to the faith, Maybe you've not read much of the Bible yet. It's actually found in the Old Testament and it's a hugely significant book. I've read it many, many times, but I do find it quite complex and quite challenging, I have to say. It is so significant because it gives us a really good idea of biblical history back then, but it also looks forward. It's a book of prophecy. It looks to the future. It's a very long book. It's 66 chapters in all, and it's really beautifully written. If you haven't read it yet, I do recommend it. It's full of imagery and poetry, but it is complex and challenging, as I've said. And so in no way am I gonna pretend this morning to be any sort of expert on it. But what I can do is I can put it in its context a little, and I can try and apply its message to us today and help you to apply the message into your own life. Before we go any further, what do we know about Isaiah? Who knows who Isaiah was? Well, he was a prophet, and he was a major prophet. In fact, he's known as the greatest prophet, probably, one of the greatest in the Bible. He was married to a prophetess himself, and they had, as far as we know, at least two sons. And they were living under the reign of a number of different Judean kings in the southern part of Israel, in Judah. And this was approximately about 700 years before Christ was born. I'm just going to ask you to put a map up now. Thanks, Phil. Now, I'm just going to give you a little bit of historical context. It was a time in Jewish history when, again, rebellion and revolts were rife. And this had led to the forming of two Hebrew kingdoms. You can see here, you've got in the north Israel and then in the southern part, Judah. So you've got the Judean Jews down there. Now, prior to this, Israel had actually been united under the reigns of Saul and David and Solomon. But after Solomon's death, and largely due to some of the decisions that he made and his behaviour, the nation disintegrated. And so we find that we've got Judah here with its capital Jerusalem and Israel up there with its capital Samaria. So looking at that map, you can see that in Isaiah's time, things were politically and geographically divided, very much divided. There was a lot of unrest and there was a lot of discontent. And this was reflected in the people very much. They were full of rebellion on the whole. Many of them were rebelling and going their own way. To all intents and purposes, a number of them had turned their back on God. And so what does God do? He always tries to call his people back, doesn't he? No matter where they've gone, no matter how far, that's what he wants to do. So he calls on Isaiah to be his messenger on earth. He wants him to be his mouthpiece. He uses Isaiah to try and call these people back to their senses. He wants to bring them back to him. He hopes that he can restore them, that he can be reconciled with them. And when I read these kind of things, I kind of think, oh no, not again. They're turning a deaf ear to the Lord again. I can't believe that. I've read that so often in the Bible. Why do they do it? No matter how many times God has rescued them, no matter how many times he's performed amazing miracles, Or provided shelter they turn their back on him and they do their own thing I get really frustrated and then I have to remind myself that when I read these passages I shouldn't be too judgmental it really is quite easy for us to sit here isn't it and say oh what fools did they not realize but actually is our society any different is our culture any different it isn't is it and us as believers I actually don't believe we're exempt from that too Is something that we constantly have to guard our hearts and our minds and our spirits against. So for me, who does have a tendency to be a little bit judgmental at times, I remind myself that whether I'm judging a nation, a people or a particular thing, a particular person, actually there but for the grace of God go I. And I think that's really important to bear in mind as we talk about their desert experience today. But Isaiah is more than just a prophecy to these people back then. The prophecy actually reaches far further into the future. In fact, I'm sure as many of you are aware, Isaiah gives us the most comprehensive picture of Jesus in the entire Old testament. It's a complete prophecy, starting with the announcement of his coming to his virgin birth, all the way through to his death his resurrection, and his return. So Isaiah is a super prophet, really, isn't he? He's a prophet extraordinaire. He's a messenger to the people. He's a foreteller, if you like, but he's also a foreteller, and he has the most amazing and incredible news, not only for those people back there, but for us too. Okay, we're going to focus in on the passage in Isaiah. It's Isaiah 43, 18 to 21. So if you turn with me page 729 of the church bible and if you keep it open at this page after that would be really helpful We've also got it on the screen, but I think it's very good to get your Bibles open. Okay. So, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up, do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honour me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the desert and streams in the wasteland, to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I form for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. Okay, so there we have our particular scripture for this morning. Now, from chapter 40 of Isaiah onwards, there is much prophecy of a time of political turmoil that is going to come to the nation of Judah. It's warning the Judean Jews that they would be suffering under a Babylonian rule. The Jewish people would, in fact, later be conquered and exiled. This does come to pass. So this particular passage we're focusing on is written to these Judean Jews with regard to a very, very bleak period in their history. They'd be an extremely low ebb in a metaphorical desert, a wasteland, if you like. They'd be captive, exiled, deserted, abandoned. And so these verses, this revelation, would have been enormously encouraging for them because it provides hope of restoration. It provides hope of a reconciliation with the Lord. It's giving them a way out, a fresh start. And indeed, this particular prophecy promises that God will do a brand new thing for them. He promises to bring about their eventual liberation from Babylon. He promises to create streams in their wasteland and a way through their desert. It's actually interesting to note that in the verses just preceding these ones that we've just written, that there are a number of references to the exodus of Moses and the people from slavery. You can go away and read those if you like. But there's themes such as a way through the sea and the chariot and the horse and the making of a roadway in the wilderness. What the Lord's doing through Isaiah is reminding the people of what he's done before, what he has already done and what he can do. He's already brought the people to their promised land. They've known him as their redeemer, as their restorer. And once again, he promises, I will rescue you. I can do that. Now, as I've said, while Isaiah is a book relating to how God is speaking to his people at that time, it's so much more than that. The prophecy extends far beyond that time to the coming of Christ, his return, and it's really relevant for us today. Because God's word is totally timeless, isn't it? No matter where and when we read it, we take something new from it, don't we? We can hear him speaking to us. And that is generation upon generation upon generation. So I believe very much he's speaking to you and me today. But what can all of that mean for us here, right now, as we sit here? Well, I think firstly, we need to determine where we're at with the Lord, don't we? Where are we at this moment? To help us do that, I think it's quite useful to look at what the definition of a desert is. And I've come up with... Not yet, not yet. (laughs) I've come up with a couple of definitions from the dictionary, and I'm just going to read them to you. The first is, a desert is defined not by temperature, but by the sparse amount of water found in a region... An area with an annual rainfall of fewer than 25 centimetres, that's 9.75 inches, generally qualifies as a desert. A desert is a barren area of lands where little precipitation occurs, and consequently living conditions are hostile for plant and animal life. So here we have a few examples of desert. The desert is a hostile environment. It's not defined by its temperature, how hot or cold it is, but by the lack of water, the lack of available precipitation. It's often very barren and sparse. It can be very, very unforgiving. A desert, quite (coughs) simply, lacks water. And if we find ourselves in a desert place, then quite simply, we can feel that we lack water metaphorically speaking i'd say that for us a desert experience is where we lack the conditions for our life in all its fullness for the very best of what jesus has to offer us and it can also be a rather dangerous and unforgiving place to be so if you think about it in that context now and maybe in the past i wonder does that desert experience resonate with you in any way Do you understand what it's like to be in a hostile environment, to have a time of feeling parched or barren or struggling or isolated? We're going to have some testimonies a little later of a couple of people who have felt that they've been there and would like to share their experience, which I think is a really brave thing to do. But for now, I'd like you to take a moment just to maybe close your eyes as I speak and reflect on where you are at this moment in time, right here, right now. So just close your eyes for a moment. I'll tell you when to open them again. Now it may be that you feel stuck in a desert at the moment, lost in a wilderness. You may be picturing that in your mind right now. You might, on the other hand, be in a time of favor, of richness, of blessing, You may not be in a desert. You may be in a green and pleasant land. Alternatively, you might be in an oasis in a time that you feel sheltered from the desert. You're able to drink, drink deep, but you know that the desert is out there somewhere. And sooner or later, you need to venture back out. Just try and place yourself at the moment. See where you are. And then open your eyes. And I wonder what pictures you did have. Now, if you're not in a desert area at the moment, or in the oasis, thinking I've got to venture back out into that desert, please don't switch off. I believe the Lord has a particular word for you today. And I'm sure, and I trust that there are many of us who are in that green and pleasant land. But I have a word for you, and I will come back to that in a little while. And as for those of us that might feel we're in a desert, well, I personally believe we all face a desert at some point in our lives. And if we're not in one right now, we might even feel that we've got a little bit of our life that is maybe that desert area that we keep out there somewhere that we never venture into. It might be a barren area or an area that robs us of our joy and we just don't want to go there. We know it's there, but we don't want to venture there. I also believe it is so important that we challenge ourselves when we're in that desert that's what Isaiah is doing to the people isn't he he's challenging them and we're no different as we've said we're no different we too like God's chosen people are chosen by Christ but we're just as fallible and can just as easily muck up so I'm going to ask you to close your eyes again I always think it's good to close our eyes when we're asking something of the Lord so we're not distracted And I'm going to ask you a few challenging questions. And this is just between you and the Lord. Ask yourself Have I been following the Lord as I should have been? Am I living secure in the knowledge that I am His? I am chosen by Him. Am I obedient to Him in every area of my life? Or do I feel bound up? Am I in any way captive to someone, something? Do I feel in exile? Do I feel on the fringes, pushed out? Have I gone off track? Have I followed my own way? Am I rebelling in any way? Only you can answer those questions. Sometimes I believe it is that we're in a desert because it's our own making. You can open your eyes now. But often it's because of circumstances beyond our control as well, isn't it? Often we're in a desert because we may have experienced a trauma, for example, or very poor health, a health scare. Sometimes it's because of financial hardship. Sometimes it's because of deep disappointment. There's all sorts of reasons we can end up in a desert place. Sometimes we do just end up there through no fault of our own. And other times we've traveled there. And it's good to acknowledge that if we have. And sometimes it's a bit of both, I think. So let's look at what the Lord can do for us if we feel we're in that area, in that place. This time we're gonna have a look at the message version of the same scripture okay so this is it in the message forget about what's happened don't keep going over old history be alert be present i'm about to do something brand new it's bursting out don't you see it there it is i'm making a road through the desert rivers in the badlands wild animals will say thank you The coyotes and the buzzards, because I provided in the desert, rivers through the sun-baked earth, drinking water for the people I chose, the people I made especially for myself, a people custom-made to praise me. So we get back to this brand new thing. Well, as I've said before, the Lord is promising something totally new to his people then, isn't he? Their future deliverance from Babylon but he's promising further forward too. He's promising salvation through Jesus because of his grace and personal promises to each one of us. I think it's a multi-layered promise really and it's an ongoing promise that we can grasp hold of. In a sense, when we read this, we think it's a funny thing to say, don't keep going over old history because often things in our history and our past can be really good, can't they? I look at it in this way, though. I think it is good sometimes to just turn our back on what's gone before when we're focusing on our present and what God wants for us. You know sometimes you meet someone and you spend some time with them and you think God has done amazing things in their lives and it's wonderful and you really enjoy their company and you're talking to them about all the things that God has done in their lives. But then after a while, you realise that all the things they're talking about happened absolutely ages ago. And then you think, well, what is God doing in your life now? And sometimes that can be, I don't know, it can pull us up, can't it? And sometimes I have to think, what is God doing in my life now? And I can tell you he's doing plenty of amazing things in my life. So I do have testimonies to talk about how good he is. But sometimes we can get caught up in what has gone before, the amazing things or something miraculous that we may have experienced. And so I think what it's saying here is God isn't saying, it's not important what I've done in the past. But actually, I'm the living God. I'm here, right here, right now, and I can do something for you today. So I think that's a really good thing to bear in mind as we read this. And I also think it's essential that we turn to God at these times and we acknowledge before him that we can't work out our own way through the desert. We can't work out our own solutions. No matter how cunning we think we are, no matter how... Resourceful or wise we might think we are we can't do it can we and if we want those roadways into our wilderness times and if we want those rivers in our own personal deserts if we want to be quenched en route then we have to acknowledge our weakness we have to acknowledge our total need and reliance on him but when we do that as well God throws it back to us I think it's always a bit of a partnership a cooperation isn't it He throws it back and he requires something of us. I don't know what your experience has been like in desert times, but sometimes it can be hard to seek him first, can't it? And that's what he requires of us, that we put him first, we seek his solutions, not our own. He wants us to renew our covenant with him and he needs us to turn from all of those negative emotions that keep us pinned in the desert. You know, when we're in desert times, it's really easy for us to become frustrated, isn't it? Or angry. We can become resentful bitter. So easy to do that. I think in those times, fear can take over and disappointment. And then we find that we might become a bit aggressive or a bit defensive. We can often, I believe, become as hostile as a desert environment we find ourselves in. And what happens if we are stuck in those attitudes? What happens? Well, we're keeping God at arm's length, aren't we? We're keeping him up there. We're not taking him by the hand. We're not allowing him to pull us up out of the desert place. We're saying, no, Lord, I can't move beyond these negative emotions. I can't move beyond it. I'm going to be stuck here a bit longer. And that's not a good thing. So I actually believe for our own personal spiritual growth and development those desert times can have their benefits for us you know we come face to face to us with ourselves don't we with all the worst bits about our character and then we can press into God and we can ask him to transform them to help us to become new creations ever more new creations and I do believe in those times we can flourish as well Aid talked very much last week, didn't he, about those harsher conditions that can produce fine character. He talked about the vines that were growing on the craggy and steep mountain slopes. And the ones that were growing in the harshest of environments actually produced the best fruit and the finest character wines. So I believe that the Lord can use those experiences to help us develop Spiritually, and refine our characters with Him during those times. Now, while we read time and time again, as I've said previously, of God rescuing and restoring His people, He always seems to be needing to do it, doesn't He? Always. It's helpful to look at particular examples of God's intervention into the lives of individuals, both from biblical history and from today. And that's what we're going to do this morning. In a bit, we're going to look at the example of Ruth in the Old Testament, and then we're going to have some bang up to date testimonies from Jane Gascoigne, Jane Jane (laughs) Gavities, and from Chris Taylor, who's over there, yeah, but they're coming up at the end of the preach, and we're going to have some testimonies from them. Now, before we do that, I'm going to come back to the word that I've had for you. I need some water myself, hold on. the word that I've had for those of you who are feeling that you're in that green and pleasant land, in that lush time. Because I believe the Lord's given me a picture for you. Now, often when we get prophetic pictures, people come up the front and they're lovely pictures, aren't they, of butterflies or waterfalls and things like that, and beautiful, I love them. Rosebuds opening up, we have these lovely pictures. For those of you in that green and pleasant land, I've had a picture that the Lord would like you to be like a camel. There you go. This is for you. Now, the camels are quite funny creatures, aren't they, when we look at them? We often think they seem a bit ridiculous or a little bit unsavoury, if we're honest. They're quite comical with their humps, their one or two humps, and their small heads, and their big... I haven't got one with these nice teeth sticking out, but as my friend would say, teeth like a bag of chips, you know? Horrible, big, criss-crossy yellow teeth knobbly knees they're not the most glamorous of creatures are they but the Lord would like you to be like a camel even though they're unsavoury even though they spit and have bad breath we need to be like camels because they are in fact the most amazing creatures they are strong they're resilient and they are able to endure in the harshest of climates in fact they're often referred to as the ships of the desert did you know that because they can carry so much and carry people through desert times as well. They are amazingly strong and resilient. And that's what God wants for us, I believe. It's a bit like what Ada was saying last week, establishing those strong roots. Well, one way that we can do this is to take our cue from the camel, and I'll tell you why. This is an extract from the National Geographic about camels, in particular about the one-humped camel. The ancient camel question is, one hump or two... Arabian camels, also known as dromedaries, have only one hump, but they employ it to great effect. The hump stores up to 80 pounds of fat, not water, fat, which a camel can break down into water and energy when sustenance is not available. These humps give camels their legendary ability to travel up to 100 desert miles without water. Camels rarely sweat even in desert temperatures that reach 120 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 49 degrees C. So when they do take in fluids, they can conserve them for very long periods of time. In winter, even desert plants may hold enough moisture to allow a camel to live without water for several weeks. When camels do refill, however, they soak up water like a sponge. A very thirsty animal can drink 30 gallons That's 135 litres of water in only 13 minutes. That's incredible, isn't it? So what can we take from that? Well, I think the Lord is saying to us, it's important in times of plenty, when things are going well for us, to really soak up his word, soak up spiritual nourishment, feast on his word, draw water from Jesus, draw living water from him then if we ever find ourselves in a desert experience, we're going to have a really good stock of resources on which we can rely. We'll have God's word, we'll have our past experiences of his goodness and his faithfulness, and we'll also have that refreshment that he'll provide for us in the rivers on the way. So let's soak it up like the camels. Now, I didn't want the other camel to be outdone, so we'll have him as well, the two-humped camel, the Bactrian camel. For those of us who are super spiritual, we could maybe store up two pumps. I don't know. See how you go. These are quite an endangered species, I found out, actually. They're only in Central Asia, and they're really quite endangered now. So, yeah. Anyway, just thought you'd like to see a nice couple of pictures of camels. Now, we'll leave the camels, and we're going to turn to Ruth now. Now, recently in our women's scripture group, at Jane's suggestion, I think, wasn't it? Your suggestion, we looked at the book of Ruth. And we had a fantastic time there, actually, because Ruth is an amazing woman. And she shows exactly what the Lord can do for us in our desert experiences if we trust him, cleave to him, and draw on those stored resources. Now, I'm gonna make no apologies that this is a very female-focused example this morning. Because it is actually universally applicable. And you'll see where I'm going with it. It's applicable to you whether you're male or female. So guys, please do not switch off. Now, if you're not familiar with the story of Ruth, this is it in a very small nutshell. Now, during the time of the Judges, which was around about the 11th century BC, there was a famine. And an Israelite family from Bethlehem called Elimelech And his wife Naomi and their two sons, they emigrate to the nearby country of Moab. And they do this obviously in search of food and in search of a better way of life. But pretty much as soon as they get there, Elimelech dies. And so Naomi is left with her two sons, who then go on to marry two women from Moab, Ruth and Orpah. And for some time things trot along and they're doing okay and they're working there and they're living there and they're still worshipping the Lord and Ruth and Orpah come to faith in the God of Israel. So things are going okay until about 10 years later when both of Naomi's sons die. Now that means that Naomi, Ruth and Orpah were all alone. They were women who would have known what it was like to be in a metaphorical desert. They were in mourning without husbands, in an extremely patriarchal society. They had to fend for themselves. That was no mean feat. And in particular for Naomi, this was difficult, because she was in a foreign land. It was not the land of her birth and the land of her God. I can imagine it would have been devastating and quite frightening for her to be in that position. So what do they do? Well, Naomi decides that it's best to return to Bethlehem to return to her people. And she explains this to both of her daughter-in-laws. One of them, Orpah, reluctantly agrees to stay in Moab with her family. But Ruth is absolutely adamant that no, she wants to go with Naomi. She now worships the God of Israel. She wants to stick with her mother-in-law and she wants to go back to Bethlehem with her. So that's what they do. And when they get there, Ruth takes a very humble position. She starts to glean, to gather grain, in the fields of a wealthy landowner called Boaz. And that's okay. they trot along for a while. But actually, Naomi's still not satisfied. And I presume Ruth isn't too, because they have come from a loving family, and now they're women on their own, trying to make the very best of their circumstances. They didn't want to stay in a metaphorical wasteland, They knew that God could restore their inheritance and that God could provide a way out for them. And Naomi was quite clued up as well. She knew God's law and she knew the law of the kinsman redeemer. And this law of the kinsman redeemer said that the closest male male relative in a family had the privilege or the responsibility for acting on behalf of a relative who was in trouble or danger, or need." There's a Hebrew term called Goel, and it literally means rescuer or redeemer, and it means that the male in the family would have that obligation to look out for these women who were destitute. And Naomi knew that Boaz was one of her family's kingsmen and redeemer, so she hatches a cunning plan. Now, if you want to know exactly how she goes about this, you're going to have to read the rest of the story for yourself. It's quite a short book. Now, Ruth and Naomi were living centuries before Isaiah, of course, so they wouldn't have been able to draw upon this particular promise, but they would have known many similar promises from the Lord to his people throughout the centuries, wouldn't they? So far, so good. Boaz does take Ruth as his wife. He offers her security, provision, safety, and a new life. And what is absolutely beautiful about this story is that she comes into a new life of blessing and favour, much more favoured than it was before. Because if you go on and you read the genealogy of Jesus, you will find out that Ruth becomes part of Jesus' family line. That is some redemption. By marrying (coughs) Boaz, they have Obed. Obed has Jesse, who has David, and then it goes on and on and on and on and on. I don't know how many times it goes on, until Mary and Jesus... So this once destitute woman, this foreigner in the land, becomes part of Jesus's family line. That is some brand new thing, isn't it? That is some amazing thing. It's also worth pointing out what kind of a man Boaz was. Before he even considers taking Ruth as his wife, before he realizes probably that he is the eligible kinsman redeemer, we see evidence of how compassionate and protective he is. Could I have the next slide, please? Boaz is actually in the fields at this time, and he sees Ruth working for the first time. Boaz went over and said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they are harvesting, and then follow them. I've warned the young men not to treat you roughly, and when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. So note then, he's offering her water, even then, isn't he? He's offering her security, provision, safety from the enemy, and water to quench her thirst. So her kinsman, Redeemer, is providing water for Ruth in a field, and later in her metaphorical desert. Okay. Okay. So what does this mean for us? Who is our kinsman redeemer? Well, it doesn't mean the same for us, obviously, does it? Which is a relief, I think, for some of us women here, I can tell you. But as we consider this story in today's context, we'll see there are many foreshadowings of what Jesus will do for us through the story of Ruth and Boaz. Like Ruth, whether we're male or whether we're female, we can call on our kinsman redeemer. In the same way that Boaz does rescue Ruth, Jesus can rescue us. He will redeem us. He'll buy us back. Whatever we're facing, whatever desert we may have put ourselves in or arrived in, we can be his own beloved bride. Amen, that's you too. Both women and men, we are his beloved bride. We as a church are his beloved bride. He is the source of our living water. And he provides us with streams as we go and pathways through our wastelands. And note, as I've said before as well, which I think is really beautiful, Ruth is a foreigner in the land. She's not a Jew, is she, by birth? She marries into it. And she has her own faith in the God of Israel. And that means she's eligible to be redeemed by Boaz. Just as when we too choose Jesus, when we say yes to him, Whatever our background may be, we can be redeemed. Ruth shows we can all be God's chosen people. So, in the story of Ruth, therefore, we have that prophetic picture of Jesus as our kinsman redeemer, our water provider. And it's true again much later of our verse in Isaiah. We're going to look at that verse one more time, this time in the New Living Translation, in just verses 18 and 19. But forget all that, it is nothing compared to what I am going to do, for I am about to do something new. See, I have already begun, do you not see it? I will make a pathway through the wilderness, I will create rivers in the dry wasteland. Isaiah is prophesying for us what Jesus can do and who he can be for us. There's no doubt about it. He is the river bringing life wherever it flows. He makes a way for us in the desert. And what he wants of us, he wants us to take that life, that abundant, rich, lush life. He wants us to take his blessings, his restoration. And what I love about restoration, when we talk about that in the Bible, it's sort of got connotations of improving and multiplying as well. Normally, when we talk about restoring a thing, we talk about bringing it back to its original condition. But in the scriptures, it doesn't really mean that. It means that it's a new, improved version, a transformation into something wonderful, just as it was for Ruth. It can be for us. You know, with Jesus and with his water, we can flourish, no matter where we are, and we can produce much fruit. And I'm going to have testimonies in a moment from a couple of people who I believe produce much fruit in spite of desert experiences. Before we get there, though, I just want to leave you with this thought. I'm going to read you an extract from the Jewish news in March of this year. Now, I don't generally take the Jewish news, but I just thought this would be a rather good article to look at. (laughs) Can we have the pictures up, please, of the desert? don't know how well you can see it. But as I read, you might be able the sun shining on it a bit too much, isn't it? The top picture is very arid, and the bottom picture is very, very lush. This is the extract from the Jewish News. The biggest storm of the Israeli winter turned the Judean desert from a Middle Eastern dust bowl into an English green landscape over the weekend. The Judean desert, which lies 1,200 metres beneath the Jerusalem mountains, acts as a basin for rainfall from Jerusalem... Heavy rainfall and subsequent floods created a unique and rare view of a thick green blanket of grass covering the desert hills. The rain filled the usually dry valley with a strong flow of water. That is amazing imagery, isn't it? It's absolutely amazing if you can see it. It's a lovely picture of what God can do for us. If we really trust him, if we believe in his word, that's what he can do for us in our desert areas. He can transform them from parched, barren lands to beautiful, lush landscapes. And I think he can transform the very area in which we find ourselves overnight if we let him. Okay, I'm just going to ask Chris first. Would you like to come up and share with us? Um, Microphone.
2: Off? Yes. Right, um, wasteland is a very appropriate terminology for what I want to tell you about. It was actually f- about 15 years ago before I <coughs> turned to find the Lord. I was always a quite a spiritual person and I was aware of something beyond myself. At the time, I was working at a university locally, doing what I loved, what I believed was a vocation, and I think I did it pretty well at the time. But as happens in places, if you do a job well, they give you more and more to do, and more and more to do. And at the end, I was doing three people's teaching loads. I was administering all the IT systems for a department of about 1,600 students and staff. And I was also trying to sort out employment problems through the union. And eventually something snapped uh, and I just couldn't cope with it anymore. I went to the doctor, I was diagnosed with burnout, symptoms being major depression, constant suicidal feelings, my brain was completely disorganised, I couldn't remember things, I couldn't put anything into order, I was just completely a mess. And I was signed off work, signed off work, and signed off work. But, and I would go home and a lot of the time I'd just lie on my bed with my brain literally screaming and there were totally irrational things going through it which I knew were irra- irrational but I couldn't um, do anything about them but every now and then I had these small elusive moments of clarity of calm when I believed it was God speaking to me it was moments of peace which are hard to put into such chaos. Anyway, eventually I was able to get a retirement, although I carried on working, doing various things, a whole range of jobs, a bit of supply teaching, a bit of adult education, uh, some care work, even did some cleaning for a while. And eventually I then came to the Alpha Course here, and that led hmm. me to Faith, or renew my faith and make me realize that these quiet words have been whispering to me in those times of turmoil where they came from mm. um, the rest of the story is still working its way out mm. okay. ah, that is... thank
1: you thank you chris it's very free. <laughs> So brave to actually come up and share some of our deeply personal stuff, isn't it? And um, I think the Lord always honours that when we do it. But it's also lovely to know that you had those moments of calm, of Jesus pouring in his water, even though you didn't realise it at that time, and bringing you, drawing you slowly back to him. Jane. Um,
3: Well it was last year and I went through quite a desert time, Um, I had to have an operation and uh, afterwards, soon after I was told, oh you'll have to move in two weeks time Mm. and um, I did that and it was just really all too much (laughs) and I had to give up my (coughs) poetry workshop and anyway I moved And when I was moving, I just went faster and faster. And then it was like a top. It goes fast and then it sort of, the momentum slows down and I just came to a standstill. Mm. And um, I went through this really bad depression for about six months. And um, my daughter looked after me a lot of the time and, and a couple of friends. And um, things I loved doing, I couldn't really do. Like drawing, I did these really mad, weird drawings (laughs) with a pen and a bit of crayon. And um, one day I thought, I can't stand this any longer. And a lot of the time, I'd get on my knees and I'd just plead with God. I'd say, I can't stand this any longer. I don't know what to do. Help! Help! I was just desperate. And and I got these tablets and um, I was walking up the stairs and I didn't realise that my daughter would just happen to be at the top of the stairs. And I sort of whipped my hand behind my back and said, Mum, what have you got behind your back? Let's have a look. And I I was seriously thinking, I've had enough, you know, I'm just going to take all these. Anyway, she called the um, medical team, Mm. the emergency, and these two really nice young men came. And um, they sort of suggested that I went into hospital until I got sorted out. I didn't really want to go, but um, I agreed to go. And um, I went and it wasn't as bad as I thought. And you told me that you would read your Bible. Then, and yes. And um, anyway, I I took my Bible with me and I thought, I've just got to read the Bible. And so, and I couldn't read very well, but I made myself do it. And I remember reading all about Joseph and his life. and. I just wrote it down so that I knew I was taking it in and I, it just really helped me and I realized that he went through so much stuff he went into prison and but God was with him all the time and God gave him favor and anyway um At the hospital, they said, um, oh, if you like, you can go and paint a tree on the fence outside. And it was freezing cold, but I put a coat on and then I put this plastic apron on and I got all the paints and I painted this tree on the fence outside. And I wrote hope and love and all these <laughs> these very positive Even things. Even though you weren't feeling it? No, I wasn't feeling like it at all. And I put fruits on the mm. tree and flowers and all sorts of things. And all the other patients were all leering out the window saying, mm oh, oh, we like that. We like it when we go <laughs> out there. <laughs> it cheers us wow. up. Yeah. And, and then the next day they say, are you going out there again? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, I don't know, it was after that, they said to me, oh, you can go home for a night. And I thought, Oh and, and anyway, they said, you've got to stay on your own now. But I went home. And it was just fantastic, (laughs) and God was there, and I thought, oh, this is my new home now, Mm. I'm all right now, (laughs) and then I asked them if I could go home, and um, they said, yes, we'll discharge you, you're fine now, and God was with me all the time, Mm. although it was a nightmare, and it was six months, and it seemed like forever, Mm. but... um, I did come out of that awful desert into a green land. Yeah. Amen. <laughs>
1: yes. I think what's so lovely about that story of James as well that the Lord was using her, even when she wasn't feeling hopeful or fruitful or all of those things, but you were still witnessing to others while you were in that desert and then he yeah. brought you out. Huh. Say, um, it's on in our women's group. Oh yes, you can come and plug it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca takes the women's group on the Thursday morning, and um, there are quite a few of us—anything um, from six to ten or twelve sometimes. Yes. And um, Jane is uh, such an inspiration in that group. I she have is. to say, she is amazing. And yes, she does these pictures, um, all sorts of
1: different. Yeah. The, the, I think the fish have disappeared, but, you know, it's just wonderful. She's great. She's a good friend. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Pam. That's lovely. Okay, so I'm just going to round off now. Now, as I've said, I think we can all find ourselves, can't we, in the desert at some point in our lives. But I think we really need to remember that Jesus can and does provide ways out And he offers us sustenance and his living water while we're there. He can always do that brand new thing. And I think for those of us who know Jesus, we have that assurance. No matter what our circumstances, that he's our kinsman redeemer. He redeems us. He's paid the price by shedding his blood for each and every one of us. And that leads us into a time of communion where we'll be celebrating exactly what the Lord has done for us this morning. So I'd just like to close in prayer. Father, I want to thank you that you are the source of all that is good for us. You are that living water. You make ways in our deserts. You create paths and rivers in our wastelands. And Lord, it is never your desire that we remain in that place. And Lord, I ask that you have spoken to each one of us here this morning, whether we are in that arid, dry land or in that green and pleasant land. Lord, for those in the green and pleasant land, I pray that you will enable them to take away that picture of the camel and to determine to become more camel-like. And for those who are in the desert, Lord, I pray that you give them more and more of your living water, that you sustain them, Lord, that you keep them going, that you give them hope, and that you make a clear way through for each and every one. And I thank you, Lord, that you can always do a brand new thing. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen.
0: Say thanks uh, to everyone that's shared. Thanks, Rebecca, for the preach, um, and thanks for those testimonies as well. O- are we glad that the, both the, in the scriptures and in our own lives there is honesty and there is truth? And scripture doesn't sugarcoat lives at all, is it? We often see the most remarkable clarity of the ups and downs of the people that we read about in the scriptures, of the really hard times, the dry times, and of the times where the Lord breaks in and does something wonderful. And it's so wonderful to hear those same themes that we read about in scripture, those same truths being so amazingly lived out uh, in our own lives. And it means that we don't have to hide. It means that we don't have to be something else when we approach the Lord because the Lord knows what we're like and He knows what we've been through and He knows where we are and He knows where He wants to lead us. And there's a tremendous freedom in that from being able to see what is okay in the Word, what is okay in the lives of one another. It makes everything okay before the Lord as we come in honesty. So I'm really valued this morning so thank you everyone. Got a scripture here from Hebrews. It says, Since we have a great high priest who is Jesus, who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our times of need. Wonderful scripture. Jesus has already been through it for us and he is willing to go through it with us whether we are in a feeling in a dry place right now where we just need that breakthrough from God or whether, as Rebecca was saying, we are in the green place and we need to drink deeply of the Lord for other people and for ourselves for the future. It's time to drink and we are all free to come. We gather at the Lord's table Come all you who are loved by God Come to the table of the Lord Come and eat food with no cost Come and drink with no money to pay We come to eat, to drink And our hearts are glad Yes, dear Lord our God Our hearts are truly glad And we are filled with thankfulness Because of your great love You did not abandon us in the dark and fearful places of this world. But in Jesus, you came to us to rescue us, to restore us, and to give us new life. And all who are tired and burdened, all who are frightened and unsafe, all who are sick and broken can come and find this new life. We remember the way Jesus showed us his love. On the evening before he died, he had supper with his friends. And during the meal, he took a loaf of bread, he gave thanks for it, he broke it, and then he passed it around with these words. This, my body, is broken for you. Eat this and remember me. And after the meal, he took the cup of wine. And he gave thanks for it. Then he passed it around with these words. This is my blood shed for you. Drink this and remember me. And now, every time we eat bread like this, and every time we drink wine like this, we remember Jesus and his everlasting 嗯。Lord Jesus, thank you so much for not holding back. You didn't hold out on us, but you truly are the kinsman redeemer that we need. Lord, you look upon us and you saw that it was your place to do everything in your power, that we might have restoration of life, that we might have provision, and healing and security that we might be brought in to that place, like Ruth was brought into that place of security and honour that our life might be secure in you and I want to thank you for the way that you looked upon each of us and said, yeah, you are worthy you are worth it, I love you, I will do that for you and so now as we come to your table Lord, I pray that we would come in the light of your generosity. And with, though we're empty-handed and we have nothing really to offer, Lord, I pray that you would fill us and feed us. That you would satisfy our thirst and our hunger. Come and be present in these moments in a profound way, we ask, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, if I can invite the band to come up. Quite soon, and if I can have the those who are going to help serve communion, we've got three tables here.
3: And